1914, Ernest Shackleton and 27 crewmen sailed for Antarctica aboard the Endurance. Their goal? To march across the entire continent. Instead, their ship became trapped in pack ice, beginning a fight for survival that lasted the better part of two years. In Amabel Holland's Endurance, a solitaire board game about the fate of that crew, you fill the long boots of Ernest Shackleton, guiding your crew from the ice-trapped Endurance to camps atop drifting floes, across the open sea on besieged lifeboats, and over inhospitable mountains to secure your final rescue. It's a game of tremendous suffering and willpower, not to mention the terror of isolation and near-certain death. Today, we're joined by Amabel Holland to discuss Endurance. Welcome, Amabel. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad you could join us for the first time. <laughs> yeah, I've never been on this show before. <laughs> <laughs> so now that you have secured your a second annual slot, how do you feel? Oh, I feel good. I like I like talking to people, and the, the, the more I can do that, the better. And I love talking about board games with you, Dan, because you have such insights into board games, and oh. you tend you tend to like my games. I like it when people do that. A lot of people don't. A lot of people don't, and I'm I'm not as thrilled to talk to them for some reason. So, yeah. Do you get a lot of invitations to chat with people who don't like your games? I get invitations to chat with people who haven't really played any of my games, and like oh. I think they expect me to be. I think they expect me to be like a normal designer, and that is it's, it's, it's such a weird mismatch you know it'd be it'd be like yeah. trying to get maybe like be like if you're like an entertainment tonight kind of reporter and you're asking like the usual glib questions of like hey girl what's it like to be in the industry yeah and it's it's like no i'm 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 a weird little goblin off to the side making <laughs> weird frustrating uh, obtuse games that are abrasive and sometimes don't even have victory conditions. So yeah, so weird, obtuse, abrasive, unvictory condition game. Today it's endurance, which mm-hmm. I I'm trying to decide where this fits because I is it my favorite of your games? It might be okay, but it might not be. I'm I'm kind of going through because I really like Nicaea as a favorite as well. It's hard. It's hard to decide. You know, I've, for a long time, I, I, I was pretty adamant that the best thing I had ever done, and probably the best thing I ever would do, uh, was this Guilty Land. I was tremendously proud of it at the time. And I still am. Yeah. I still am proud of it. But, um, you know, that was a game I made when I had a different name. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, when my brain worked differently, right? Um, right. And I think you can see that because with a game like Nicaea or Endurance, there's such a clarity to it. Uh, it's a lot more elegant. I'm not like reaching for things as much. Mm, it's not as cobbled sure. together. And it seems to say what it's saying more effectively, more expressively. Uh, so and I've been thinking about that a lot about how like, especially because it's such a personal game and it's it's uh, endurances and it's probably in some ways more experimental and more the thing i talk about doing like here's a game that's frustrating like it's certainly more frustrating than most of my games are 
And um, right. <laughs> so, I, so I, I actually think right now is probably my favorite of, of my games, and that's it. Probably will be at least at least until until my my giant monster game comes out in a couple of months. We'll see how that goes. But um, yeah, I think I think that's an encouraging thing to hear. When when you created this guilty land and you had mentioned to me that it was probably the best thing you would ever do, I think that's exciting. And I think that's a powerful statement to make about your own work. But I think also being able to come out with a new game with your new identity, having gone through some things and say, no, I think this may be my best game, my most expressive game, my smoothest expressive game. I, I think that's wonderful. And I think maybe... First of all, I, I think I might agree with it um, because I play endurance and I am blown away by some of the things it gets me to feel when I'm playing it. And I think it's wonderful that you're able to say that at the same time. Now you've said that endurance was in the works for quite a long time. Is that the case? Yes. So this is a game that I, it took about six years. Now that wasn't six years of constant work because uh, right. When I started the game, uh, it was with the idea of basically using the kind of chit cup system from some of my earlier like games, my solo games, uh, Agricola, Charlemagne, Aurelian, yeah. and using that to reflect shifting morale. So it's basically mm-hmm. going to be, let's take this system that's built around like military conquest and governance and let's make it a thing about um, survival and morale. And it kind of just got stuck. Like, I couldn't quite get how to make it work. And I couldn't quite figure out what it is I actually wanted to say. So something I kept coming back to over time. And I will say that uh, Mary Holland, who, who comes Holland Spiel with me, was very... Uh, adamant that I should I should complete this game and get it out because she was very interested in it. But it took some time uh, before I could... before the pieces could fall into place, really. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the big pieces was just figuring out how to approach the overall story. Because the story of, of the Endurance, historically, is you know, they went through all of this very intense stuff, uh, fighting these impossible odds, and they came out on the other end of it, okay. I mean, some mm-hmm. version of okay. Uh, right. a, a lot of them were, were deeply damaged by it, but, um, you know, there were no human deaths during the adventure, as it were. Yeah. And, you know, how how do you reflect that in, in a game, right? And what I came around to was, well, this was like the least likely result. There were so many near misses. There are so many things that should have just killed all or most of them and, and somehow didn't just, just not only through like leadership, but th- through dumb luck. And it occurred to me that I could express like this, these this thousands to one odds, this miracle, uh, not through making the recreation a sure thing, because mm-hmm. then you don't really get the sense of it or the sense of the the, the despair, really. Right. 
um, but rather uh, presenting it through its absence, through like, here, here is a model. You know, some, some people who uh, do a lot of work and talk about a lot is models and probability. Well, here is a yeah. model of this situation, and uh, you run through this model, and the historical result is extremely unlikely, and hopefully will demonstrate just how miraculous it was. You mentioned a couple of these pieces coming together to let you design this game. Yeah. So it sounds like you had to just throw out your three cups system. Yeah, basically. And another one is how do you represent this misery? Just the, the long odds of this survival. And I want to talk a lot more about that because I think you've done something uh, incredibly unique with how you've decided to represent the history. Were there any other pieces that had to fall together before you could design this game? Um, or are those the two main pieces of the jigsaw? Um, I think to a degree, those are two main pieces of the jigsaw. Now, I would say that that second piece, that vital second piece, you know, I'll, that really came... I mean, this is not a game that I could have finished before uh, my gender transition. Mm-hmm. because it was kind of living through my own misery and my own miracle uh, that made me think about the odds. Because the, the odds of me figuring out my shit were, like, so long, such long odds. <laughs> I was so oblivious. And the things that came together in the particular way that they did, in the order that they did, to get me to the point where the this obvious thing occurred to me and it was something that I could actually do where I could be saved mm-hmm. um, after feeling absolutely hopeless for so long. It's, it's just it's just it's just a pile of coincidences that just just staggers the mind. Yeah. And some of that is board game related, right? Because um I think if I hadn't had if I wasn't full-time making board games, I wouldn't have had the time to actually think about myself if I was, like, working a real job. Sure. And, you know, a big... She's going to hate me saying this, because she hates it every time I do, but a big part of what got me to figure my stuff out was becoming friends with Aaron Escobedo. Right. And that was from us publishing Meltwater, which she submitted to us because we had published infamous traffic, which Cole submitted to us. Cause I, I asked him to, and he remembered me as the designer North and Pacific. So if, if those things hadn't happened, cause there's, there's actually no reason why Cole should have said yes to, to this brand new company. <laughs> <laughs> if all those things didn't happen, I don't know if I would be here today talking to you. Yeah. So, um, and just the awareness of that sometimes is overwhelming. How lucky I am is overwhelming. And the fact that there are a lot of people who are not that lucky, who do not make it that long to figure themselves out, it's a very sobering thing. And I think that is a big part of what led to this approach. You do so many things with this game, and one of them is that it throws out historical determinism. And what I mean by that is, you know, I speak with a lot of game designers 
who what they're trying to do is take something from history and represent it. And the question is, how do we create a model that is going to represent history, which, you know, history is messy, it's complicated. Um, the stuff you were taught in high school is almost never quite right. And that's at best, you know, sometimes it's blatantly wrong. And so there's a lot of discussion going on about how do we create good historical models? And one of the big considerations is, well, how do we create a model where what happened historically will happen in the game? And you've sort of gone the other direction where you present this very difficult situation, the, sur the survival of Shackleton and his crew, and you make it almost impossible because of the just the burdens that are being piled on the player turn after turn. So when when did you decide to go that direction to to say this is the in, in the multiverse or where you know whatever we're using as our metric that this is the outcome this survival that will only happen one out of a thousand times when did you decide to go with that as opposed to let's recreate history well uh, part of it was i mean it was kind of all tied up with that that sense of how long the odds were and 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 that but also really like i think in my games generally i tend not to favor the quote-unquote, the historical results when I'm trying to build a model. I try to build a model somewhat probabilistically. I mean, also, I'm, I'm, I don't approach it scientifically because I'm not a scientific person, really. Uh, I approach it more like, you know, what argument do I want to make? But um, I also do look at, like, how many coincidences, coincidences there are just in history, right? And so mm -hmm. a lot of my games don't necessarily always or even often lead to the historical result if that historical result was unlikely. You know, it's something that you have in a lot of older war games, and, you know, war games today as well, um, where, you know, you have the combat results table and, you know, you, you, roll right. a, you roll a die and it gives you the odds of success or failure and you do the column shifts to increase the odds. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes... When you want to roll a six, when you when you should you'll when you'll succeed on a two through six, you'll roll a one. Sometimes ones are rolled both both uh, physically on the table and also in in life. Right? There are certainly situations where there is no way it should have worked, but it did. Mm -hmm. I've always been fascinated by that and that idea. You know, there's something. One of my favorite stories. I'm not going to remember much of the details now. I always have to go back and look them up. So, fortunately, it's not a very detailed version of this story. But one of my favorite stories is about um, the betrayal of West Point by Bendit Arnold, or the attempted betrayal of West Point by Bendit Arnold. The fella, Major Major Andre, uh, who was given the plans for the betrayal, he misses the ship he's supposed to be on because of some coincidence or another. And he goes riding, goes riding the wrong way. And he sees some guys... And one of the guys is wearing a, a green coat, a, a, a Hessian coat. And mm -hmm. he's like, oh, it's, it's a Hessian. And he calls out to the guy and is like, these, these damn Americans or whatever he says. And it turns out that that guy was an American who had a Hessian coat because he had just escaped from, from a prisoner of war camp that he had been put in originally 
because he was sleeping with someone he shouldn't have and someone orchestrated it. And so he he comes across these guys and he tries to talk, talk his way out of it. Like, oh, I'm just making a, a, a joke because he's in disguise. I'm just making a joke. And they find the plans in his boot. And, you know, this is the 1700s. People don't generally can't read. But one of the guys can read. One of the guy just happens to be able to read. Yeah. Because of that, because of that coat, because that guy escaped from the prison, because that guy missed his vote, because that guy could read, that is why uh, Bendit Arnold was stopped from betraying West Point. That's why he ran away, did not betray West Point. The betrayal of West Point would have been a huge game changer in that war. The, all, all of history, as far as uh, America is concerned, would be dramatically different if not for that coat. Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like a lot of games assume the coat will always be there. And I don't feel right. that's a fair assumption. Right. These have tremendous rippling effects just from accidents that happen. Somebody rolling box cars, or in that case, I guess he probably rolled snake eyes because he didn't want to, to mm -hmm. be found out. Yeah. And I'm sure every, I'm sure every single person, who has a spouse or significant other has a, has stories about how they met and how they how how they fell in love and there's coincidences piled up there as well. Yeah, every time. And so I I think you have to kind of represent that. And I would say actually one thing I'm drawn to more about historical games, especially historical games that aren't like strict you know war games, is the ability to embrace uh, the chaotic. Mm -hmm. And to give the sense that you don't have the foresight of, oh, I know this event is coming, but rather you are in the thick of it. Because we all of us are in the thick of it, trying to do the best we can with limited information. Well, and for a long time, that's been one of my big concerns with how we represent history. I had this thought years ago when I, the first couple of times I played Twilight Struggle which mm -hmm. I think is actually a very good game. I think it's very influential. I enjoy Twilight Struggle. But I remember thinking as I played the game the second time and I had learned the cards very basically, right? There's so many cards, of course, I didn't remember all of them, but I knew certain cards were coming up and I was already preparing for them. And I'm going, well, this is, this is bad history the instant this happens because mm -hmm. now I'm planning on uh, historical events that have not occurred. Like how... Do, you know, you can't, I can't be like, oh, the Gulf of Tonkin, you know, I, I know that's coming up. That can't, that is not possible in real life. And ever Absolutely. since then, I've been very interested in games that represent history by adding the uncertainty of their actors. You know, you look at someone like Shackleton and it seems like he was rolling boxcars just over and over and over um, in a bad situation. And even when he didn't roll boxcars, like uh, when he, you know, goes the wrong direction. He just has the, and he has the fortitude to see it through. He gets through the bad roll. But there's a lot of other lucky breaks too, you know, you know, also uh, what you just mentioned about Twilight Struggle and other card driven games. And, and, and those games can be very compelling. You know, I, Absolutely. I, do, I do enjoy them. And I've done a couple of card games in, in that way. Just they're very small games <laughs> where, yeah. where, you know, uh, but the other card-driven games I've done, uh, this, this is like This Guilty Land and The Vote, 
the thing I'm very careful with is that most of those event cards do not represent like the actual events or history or the thing you can count on. It's just like it's just like these are like just public opinion arguments. They're more abstract. They're meant to be more abstract. People really hate that. People really hate that because they they want like the 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 little event that's cute and and like ties in with the effect and gives you the flavor, but all that flavor doesn't give you the argument. Yeah. It doesn't give you the sense of the uncertainty in grappling with the history. And I feel like that's a much more important thing to capture. Also, it's easier to do those games without having to come up with 50 card effects. <laughs> but that's <laughs> sure, that's, that's sure. one of my secrets. <laughs> well, and this is something I re- recently discussed with Tori Brown um, when we chatted about her absolutely wonderful game, Votes for Women, where she points out that when you're playing as the side that is the suffragist side, trying to secure votes for the women in the United States, that one of the cards that's very beneficial for them is the Southern strategy. Mm -hmm. But that card is a trap because the other side, the side that is opposing women having the vote can then use the Southern strategy to trigger all sorts of effects down the line. They have Mm -hmm. cards that can only trigger their effects if the Southern strategy has been used, which means that after you've played the game once, you're never very likely to resort to the Southern strategy. And, and this, this is very good illustrative history on the one hand, because it teaches you as a player about the ramifications of certain actions. But from another perspective of history, there's a little bit of weakness there because now you have the foresight that its actors would have lacked. And I, I just love talking to designers about these different approaches to history because she is using history in a very didactic sense. It's meant to be, that's meant to be a game that students play. Yeah. It's very approachable. So, so she's doing the card effect thing. You know, you play a card and it says this card affects Massachusetts and Texas, and you can sit down and talk about why that is. And it's very useful in that regard. But it's not the kind of game that's trying to put you directly in the boots, the way endurance is, of the people who made that decision. And it's not a better or a worse approach. It's just a very different approach from what you're doing with it's endurance. It's a different approach for different names. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, while we're before we go back to the topic of the game we're here to talk about, um, can I say something? Say something that uh, actually I quite admire about about Tori's design there, um, which I have not played yet, but I've you know I've I've read about it. Not now that yeah. there is some distance between there being two games on the subject, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the thing with the 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 two different colored uh, meeples or cubes on the suffragist side. Beautiful, beautiful. That's yeah. that's amazing. I I wish I had thought of that. I am so jealous because that is such a per. Mm, it's great. That's that's just a lovely thing. I love that she did that, and I think it gives you such a great sense when you're playing that any forward movement is going to be beset by factional politics. Mm-hmm. And we've seen a few games do this lately. You know, I'm thinking of Alex Knight's Land and Freedom. I'm thinking of um, Block by Block. You know, these games that are trying to point out that progressive movements always rely on very tense coalition building. Uh, so I love, I love that she did that. You're absolutely right. 
So how are you going about representing your feet in the boots history? Uh, because I think a lot of the ways you do it is maybe counterintuitive from a certain perspective, because rather than go deep into like granular spreadsheets, looking at dozens of resources in your inventory, playing Tetris with all of your equipment, you know, there's a lot of ways that, for instance, a digital game might try to represent Shackleton's uh, journey. And mm -hmm. in a way, you go the opposite direction. You go very abstract. Rather than trying to capture the granularity of every little event, you reach into, and there are a few ways you do this, and I'd love to get your opinion on them. Um, but for instance, the card system. I love how simple and approachable your card system is. And just to describe it for our listeners, so pretty much every turn in Amabel's Endurance is you draw, at the start of the game, two cards. And one of those cards you're going to use for, let's call it an action. I don't know. I don't remember action the exact term. Yeah. Yeah. An action and a test. And the action is generally something beneficial for you. Like we're going to race our dogs or use our dogs to bring back supplies, or we're going to go hunting, or we're going to play cards, you know, <laughs> something beneficial to your crew. And then the test is something you have to do to survive. Like we're going to eat and feed our dogs, or we're going to use blubber to heat the camp. And between these, so you take one action, you take one test, and at the start of the game, two cards, relatively easy decision. But then you do something where as the game progresses and the conditions become harder for your crew, now you're drawing three cards. And any card that you can't do its action or its test or you don't succeed at them, you have a penalty on the bottom of every card. So now you're drawing three, which means one card you must do its penalty. And eventually you're going to draw four. And eventually, am I right? You get to five. five, five. Yeah. And so you're always going to be doing f at least three penalties, which is just absolutely brutal, but totally reflect, you know, reflects the conditions of trying to survive on elephant Island or, you know, whatever step of the journey you're on. Um, and this is a very abstract way of approaching, you know, you're not, you're not marching across a map. You're not navigating. You're not doing, you know, many of the things that I think other designers might try to do to get you to lean into the experience of being here in the wilderness of Antarctica. So how did you get there? Why did you decide on this abstract card system as opposed to, you know, any of the hundred other ways that this could have gone? Um, well, I think the key thing is I wanted to limit agency or I didn't want this huge menu of options for you to choose from because I think in that situation, you know, historically there's, there's been a lot of time sitting around being cold and miserable and trying to do what, what they could to, to raise their spirits and whatnot. So just having those, a very simple choice uh, and sometimes a very difficult choice, sometimes a kind of obvious choice. Because um, one thing about spending, you know, almost two years in Antarctica is that it's not really the most interesting place to be stuck. A lot of it is, is kind of monotonous. <laughs> right. I wanted to have some degree of that monotony. I wanted to have um, some flavor of just the sense that, you know, you're not doing... Because... So, you know, again, this is something that 
I, I realized very quickly when I was trying to make it work as a as an Agricola Charlemagne cup system kind of game. Uh, in those games, you have these things you're going around and doing, and what you do uh, affects the larger state of the game. You know, you're building things. You're not building anything in Antarctica. Yeah. You know, you're just trying to cling to hope and, like, muddle through and survive. You can't conquer your way out of it. Um, and so... I didn't want a sense of here are all these choices. Here is this strategy. It's not really a strategic game. It's a very tactical game. It's a very day-to-day, what are we doing today to survive kind of game. And I feel like having those small, limited choices is something that would convey that in a way that, like, you know, a hex map of Antarctica or... I mean, they didn't even actually get to Antarctica. They were stuck on the ice adjacent right. to Antarctica. <laughs> you know, uh, right. where I, I, you know, I didn't feel like that would really evoke those feelings. What it would evoke would be like feelings of like a grand adventure, which is a way the way I think a lot of people historically have presented or mispresented the Shackleton story as like some kind of adventure story, but it's really yeah. a story about like misery and human suffering at the same time you know so you have this tactical choice you're making you also do have a shade of the strategic because you are thinking about your long-term survival and mostly you represent that with your resource system and again kind of like you know i can easily envision a hex map version of this game i can easily same same idea i can easily envision a game where you are every day choosing what kind of rations to feed everybody down to the tin you know mm-hmm. uh, where you look at it and you say i've got you know 15 crates of this and i'm only going to break open one of them and instead your resource system does something totally unexpected by again being abstract but also i think in in the abstraction striking at a deeper truth and um, the way it works in this game is let's say you need to feed somebody so you look at your your food and you say i'm going to feed him some canned food today that's what we're feeding our crew and so you roll a die and either the food is exhausted or it's not it's used up or it's not you've either stretched your food supplies or you haven't today and i think one of the things that 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 does which i absolutely love amabel is it captures some of what was going on with the crew for instance they were there on the ice during leap day and they celebrated leap day by treating themselves to three full meals (laughs) and that day the food token was exhausted and other days they they fasted and they stretched their meals and it wasn't exhausted. And your game captures the fact that you can't just, you know, in, in a game you might say, well, every day you're going to eat 0.2 rations. But in real life, that's not how it works. Some days you need to break out the rations and some days you can stretch them. When did you settle on that? So once I figured out it wasn't going to be a cup system game, right, is when like, I started being able to actually do work on the game (laughs) and Mm -hmm. very quickly. I was like, okay, I need some kind of inventory thing, but I don't want an inventory complicated tracking system. I don't want campaign for North Africa. You don't want water for your noodles. No, I don't want water for my pasta. No. Um, (laughs) And I don't, I don't want, um, it's not just, I didn't want it to be fiddly. It's that I didn't want it to be certain or mathematical. You know, mm-hmm. because 
games themselves tend towards uh, because they take things that are abstract and wiggly and make them very concrete and make them into discrete units of things. Games can tend to be mathematical, be played very mathematically. And I kind of hate that. Like, even when I play, like, a train game, <laughs> right? I'm not the one counting how many dollars this is going to be and doing the bid so I'm exactly a dollar more after the bid so I can buy this thing and doing these games. I don't do those calculations. I do, I do what feels right in the gut. And this is why yeah. I lose a lot of these games. But... <laughs> <laughs> But I, I, I really strongly dislike that kind of mathematical approach, especially to something like this. I, I think you need a sense of uncertainty. I think you need to reflect like an emotional reality because if you if it's a system where you're rewarded for approaching it like like a math problem, like fractions of this and using that, then there's never any worry. There's never yeah. any sense that you're going to run out because you know exactly what you're going to need for each each time. And that that doesn't get the feel of it across. The feel of the thing is so important because you're dealing with, with emotional reality. Mm-hmm. I think that's so much more important than literal, you know, how, how many things there are of this or that. So, and, and yeah, it's an abstract system. And yeah, because there are only so many inventory slots and, you know, a thing of meat takes up the same amount of space as a gun or a pack of cards, you know, do, what does that literally represent? People will, people might ask me that, like, it doesn't make thematic sense because a pack of cards takes up less room than, than this hunk of seal meat. And it's like, yeah, whatever. You're a weird nerd. I don't care. <laughs> I just, I, I, I can't care less about those kind of questions. Those, I really hate. So I answer a lot of questions on BGG. That's, that's part of my job. Is, is that yeah. customer service answer? I'm very bad at it, but I do do, I do do it. Um, and people will ask like, what, what does this represent? How many men are represented by this counter? Uh, how, how? And it's like, just, I don't know, man. It's partially, uh, I don't want to say it's just a game, but like it, it's an abstraction. And there are people who have a lot of difficulty with those kinds of abstractions. Yeah. And it's just like, it's a magic trick. It's a, it's a little bit of thing you have to believe for, for the rest of it to work, you know, and, yeah. and getting, getting irritable about like how much physical space the thing on the counter represent it's it's like it's like people get upset you know like they they can accept that bruce banner turns into the hulk but they can't accept that his pants stay on <laughs> you know it's it's like just you, you have to accept that little bit of magic trick right well i th- i think that what goes missing when when we get hung up on questions like that and you know i i understand the intention of many people's questions when they ask that like, for instance, when I wrote my review of Endurance, I, I remember somebody asking something. I don't remember if it was on my site or social media. The question was about Frank Hurley, who had been the expedition photographer. 
And um, when the endurance, you know, it was trapped in ice, it was going to be crushed. They knew that they had been shoring it up with the, with the carpenter. They had been trying to hold it together. They knew it was going to be crushed. And Frank Hurley boarded the ship and chose which of his glass slot, whatever they're called, glass plates for his photographs he was going to take with him. And the others he smashed. That's beautiful. And the per- and that here's the thing. The person asked, well, why, if they were going to be crushed by the ship, why would he smash them? And I'm going, well, think about it. This is, this is his sole act of agency. Mm-hmm. If they're going to be destroyed, why not destroy them himself? I, I love the choice that he made to, I'm going to save a hundred. I don't know how many he saved, but I'm going to save the ones that I want to save that will represent our journey. And the rest, if, the, if I don't get to, if I can't have them, no one can have them. The sea can't have them. No one, you know, the, this disaster can't have them. And it's such a human thing to do. Mm-hmm. And Frank Hurley was an artist and, you know, he went on to, develop composite imagery of world war one. And, you know, he, he had a, he had a, an idea of what an artist should do. And to me in that moment, I see an artist making a choice about that. If, if the void is going to claim his art, well, no, it's not, he's going to claim his art, but somebody approaching that from a survival perspective, which I think is very similar to a game perspective where you're, you're mathing everything out and what utility does this action serve? Well, it serves no utility whatsoever, except the utility that it serves to his soul. Yeah. And so when I'm when I'm playing your game, should I should I be bothered that a pack of cards takes the same amount of room as you know an entire seal uh, worth of meat? I I think that no. What it's showing is it's showing a priority. The inventory isn't meant to be a physical, you know, one-to-one representation. It's trying to show these are the things that we chose to carry with us. And we chose to account not only for our bodies, but for our hearts. And that takes something of our planning and our attention and our bandwidth. Um, And we could have taken more meat, but instead we chose to bring a a pack of cards and it probably represents more than cards if we want to get literal about it it's also books and you know the phonograph is also records you know they're they're heavy things but what it shows is that we're paying care and attention not only to our bodies and our bellies but also to our hearts and souls and i'm probably talking too much but it, it, can you no, tell i love this game well thank you and i i mean i'm in agreement with you and i i would say one thing so so i i don't want to come across as too harsh towards people who you know buy buy my games and absolutely whatnot. but and, that, and that's but, why i say i i get it i get the questions but and i say this as someone who is like myself i don't understand most people because i am extremely autistic but <laughs> but like i don't understand the need to take really any work of art, whether it's a game, a movie, whatever, literally all the time, you know, or approach it like a problem to solve, which is something you get a lot in games, actually. I, I, I think, like, media literacy is bad these days, is, is, is not good. People do not have good media literacy these days because th- there seems to be such resistance to things existing metaphorically Mm -hmm. and like 
metaphor is like one of the most powerful things we have with art. The whole point of art, art gives us words for the ineffable, right? Yeah. And and you can't you can't do that by making it a math problem. I often think about just the shock that is our existence that, you know, we're, we are meat. We are animals that woke up and then thought about why it is. We think about ourselves. Yeah. That isn't, that isn't something that can't, yeah. That isn't something that can be explained through, through the logical side of the brain that has to be explained by, by approximation and metaphor. And I, I think that board games, I love board games. I obviously love board games. I hope my love of board games isn't in question. But sometimes board games lean so far into the logical that we lose a, just a little too much of that of that self-wonder, which is maybe one of the reasons why Endurance strikes so hard with me, because it's a game that, yes, it is a model. And yes, there is math and there's probability. But that's not the highlight, and it doesn't feel like the highlight while you play it. Thank you. Now, in the middle of the game, and I, I'm curious, I, I would almost think this might be the most, uh, you're already <laughs> laughing because you know it's coming. This might be the, at least in the people I've talked with, this is probably the most controversial element of the game. And I don't know if that bears out in your experience as well. Um, you have this interlude. You, it's called the lifeboat phase. And it is uh, amiable. I don't know if you know this, but it is deeply difficult and unpleasant. Even in a game that's already deeply difficult and unpleasant. The lifeboat phase where, you know, you've been playing this game and now the game is going to take a break to, uh, to screw you over even more. And what you do is you load everything, all of your people, all of your equipment. I guess you could load some dogs onto the lifeboats as well. Although I don't think I ever have. Maybe I have. I would, I, I would have to go look at some photos. But you load them onto three lifeboats, and then you proceed to roll dice and get jostled, and probably at least a third of your people die. And the first time I played, I, I was deeply annoyed at the lifeboats phase. But I've, I've come to view it as the hinge on which the game turns. I, maybe I'll explain that in a moment. But first, I want to ask you, what were you thinking with the lifeboats phase. Um, the thing is, in, in the regular flow of play, I never w- would have been able to represent that three-day lifeboat journey. Yeah. Which is, I think, the point where their, their suffering, their physical suffering, was probably the most intense. And, and the thing where the odds of survival were, like, the most impossible. Yeah. Um, well, and they were and, just being soaked. So this is the period, just in case somebody isn't is listening and don't, doesn't know what's going on. So this is the period where they say, you know what, we need to make a break for one of these nearby islands. So we're going to shore up the, these three lifeboats and we're going to climb on them and we're just going to survive mm-hmm. for the amount of time it takes to reach somewhere that is not a melting iceberg. Yeah. And, you know, during that period, like water is filling the... the the bottom of the boats is this is how um, one of the crew members got frostbite and getting his, his foot infected with gangrene had to be amputated. Yeah. This is the time where like, they are obviously having to like shit out off the side of the boat. 
Yeah. Um, they are staying awake for three days straight in, in this terrible weather. Um, they forgot to bring potable water. And of course it's, it's salt water out there. So they were like sucking on raw hunks of meat to get some moisture because their throats were drying up. Like this, this incredible mind boggling physical suffering. And I, yeah, so I, I needed to represent that because that's, that's such a turning point in, in the story, because really for, for all I talk about, you know, not wanting to be historically deterministic, like the game f- basically follows the sequence of events. You might not, yeah. maybe not everyone gets there at the end, but um, so I wanted to represent that. And I wanted to be something that, that really stood out and felt different and a little unfair and still kind of of a piece with the game because it's still, you know, the game is a, is one that uses a lot of dice rolls and there's only a lot of dice rolls in the lifeboat sequence. Um, I want something that would stress cooperativeness between uh, the boats, between the men. And so mm-hmm. you have this way you, you can share dice when you're trying to fulfill these conditions that are on the cards. And I wanted something that is not a test of the skills you've had playing the game. It's a test of how you've done so far, because Mm-hmm. If you have kept your men and their morale intact up until that point, it's going to be a lot easier. If you have a lot right. of men who are demoralized, they're not rolling dice. It is not going to be easier. <laughs> it's going to be much yeah. harder. So that's basically where it came from. Like, yeah, I wanted, and I, I knew, like, I kind of knew when I was like, people are, a lot of people are going to hate this. Um, <laughs> That never looked that stopped me before. <laughs> well, one reason I feel like it's the hinge on which the game turns is, to me, it's sort of the emotional moment when you step off the cliff in order to survive. It's jumping off the cliff into the river, to use uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance. It's that emotional moment where you've been so careful in surviving and you've been measuring out your supplies and recovering them from the boat and you know, all the little particulars. And this is the moment when that's not going to work anymore. It's time to climb into some lifeboats and get thrown around by the ocean. And it sort of sets the tone of the game going forward where the lifeboats phase, I feel like is what sets me free when I'm playing. Now I can uh, going into that second half of the game, just trying to survive on elephant Island and sending off some of my crew. The decisions I make are, are a lot more informed by feeling than they are by particular survival. Um, I'm just going, yep. People are going to be demoralized. Someone will probably die. The people I'm sending to go for help, with Shackleton are going to be the troublemakers because I can't have them stay here. So they're going to go with Shackleton so we can keep them from making the rest of our lives miserable. And uh, the lifeboats phase is what does that. So even though it's deeply unpleasant and difficult, I think it sets the tone for the game going forward in a very important way. Now, Amabel, let me ask you a question, because I I think you may have forgotten to put this in the rule book, but how do you win this game? Oh, you don't. There's no win condition. 
why why is that? Now, I'm not a linguistic prescriptivist, but you know, often we think about games and a game has a win condition. So, what why in this game, you know, according to some, I'm not me, but according to some, why have you decided to not have a win or loss condition? Really, uh when it comes down to it, a big a big um drive for that is I was deeply uncomfortable trying to quantify the value of a human life. Mm. <laughs> frankly. Knowing that the historical result is very difficult to reach. Mm-hmm. Um I haven't heard anyone who's reached it yet. <laughs> so I I I mean it is theoretically possible. I just haven't seen it. So, like, that can't be a win condition, because then everyone always loses. But also, just, I I can't, I can't reduce it to math. I can't reduce it to, well, if you save 17 of the 27 men, you won the game. You know, that that feels wrong, and it feels like, once you introduce that, once there's a victory condition then your your calculation is how do I achieve that victory condition? Mm-hmm. Regardless of what the cost is. Like, losses become acceptable. And that's not really how it was approached historically, and that's not how I think we should approach human lives. And animal lives, for that matter, because uh, certainly one of the reasons why it took me six years also is that it's actually quite difficult for me to do a game with like animal suffering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's this, uh, that's a very hard thing for me. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I could not, I was not interested in quantifying that. And I think it's more interesting also to just let you decide what that meant, what you did. It also kind of centers it more as an experience and more in line, perhaps with uh, a lot of tabletop role-playing games. Mm-hmm. Those almost never have victory conditions, and some are, especially the solitaire ones, are quite experimental. Um, right. And I wanted, you know, that feeling of that experience. I think, in a way, it makes it somewhat more immersive, and you are more likely, perhaps, to sit with how you did and what it meant and what guilt or remorse you might feel or not feel. Because there are people who feel nothing for pieces of cardboard, they can't make that imaginative leap. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm not one of them. I get, you know, I I was um, talking with my partner Sawin about uh, choices in video games, about moral choices in video games, and like if I do things that hurt the feelings of the pixel people, I I'm very upset. I know mm-hmm. they're not real mm-hmm. people, right? But I'm very upset. Right. Uh, one time, years and years ago, I was playing the game Bioshock, which uh, I don't think has aged super well. But uh, I was playing Bioshock, and accidentally I hit I hit the wrong button. You know, the big the, the the choice you come. So you ate the little girl. I ate the little girl, and I was like, "Oh no!" I was so upset. I deleted my save file and started over, and I was pretty far in the game. I I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't with that. Other people are probably min maxing that that stuff. I can't. Yeah. I can't do that. So, like, from from a moral perspective, as someone trying to create, you know, some kind of artistic work, uh, using artistic in the sense of I'm trying to express something, not that I think it's high art or anything, 
um, not, you know, having a value judgment with the word artistic. I just, yeah, I couldn't and didn't want to have there be a win condition. And I think, again, that is also trying to make the whole game feel less like a math problem for people to solve, like mm-hmm. a thing for them to go through, you know. Speaking of Shackleton, who got, he, he, so he got the perfect win condition, except he reportedly spent the rest of his life deeply distressed mm-hmm. by the suffering that he had, in a sense, inflicted on his crew by being the man who had commissioned the expedition mm-hmm. and also the lives that were lost on the Ross Sea Party side of the expedition. Because I, I think three men died in the Ross Sea Party, which was the other half. And of course, that's not Shackleton's fault. That was on the other side of Antarctica and so forth. They were not in the similar straits to his party. But apparently he was quite distressed by the suffering of his crew, by the amputations, by uh, the trauma that was inflicted on them, and by the loss of life in the other Sea Party. And so if the person who won the game is still not considering it a win condition, is it appropriate to have a win condition where you, you know, you win if you lose fewer than 10 crew or, or whatever, you know, pick a number. I, I do think it forces us to, as you, as you put it, to sit with whatever has happened. For instance, I, so my best, my best outcome is three deaths okay. and I have no idea if that's good or bad. You know, it's, it's certainly better than, you know, when everyone died or when half of, you know, over half of my crew died, is that a win or is that a loss? Well, I think it depends. I think, I think of it as a win to have only lost three people in just such dire straits. But I, I like that we don't put a label on it. I think it makes the game uh, more meaningful. Thank you. I, I, I try, see, I, I build games and I build games, you know, sometimes to, you know, to be competitive and to try to win and whatnot. And, but often I build them to express a thing and to a point where victory is kind of superfluous. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, like, um, you know, this guilty land, for example, which side wins in the context of that political conflict, which does not resolve anything, does not matter. Yeah, the, the whole the whole thesis of the game is that it does not matter, um, and the meaning of the game isn't derived by winning or losing, but by the interaction, you know, and the observation of that. And I feel like that's a very unusual approach, <laughs> frankly, to, to to board games where people tend to. I don't know, look at the pursuit of the victory condition as like the be all end all. And I understand that. I understand why that's predominantly how we approach board games, but I feel like there's more. You can do more with it, with the form. Um, and I'm trying. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I think you, you mentioned tabletop RPGs, and I think more and more we're seeing designers willing to bring some of that ambiguity, some of that moral exploration that we're seeing some of that sensitivity from tabletop RPGs because they're doing exciting things and bringing that over into our hobby, which I think is great. Yeah. You know, and I think, I think when you're trying to do, 
Because some, you know, some of my games, you know, we're talking about we're talking about this game compared to some of my other games, and some of my games, you know, I'm trying to make a very didactic point, a political point, yeah. an argument. I, I see it as a kind of agitprop. And this is something that's of about an experience, about like emotional stuff, about hope in the face of despair and like grappling with mortality and all that. And I I just can't I can't see reducing that to math, because that's not that's sure. not how that works. And, and something that we were talking about before before we started recording is that during the the period of time when I was finishing work on on endurance, I I was having a time um, grappling with my mortality and being hopeful in the face of despair and whatnot. Um, and like that certainly, I think is something that has uh, impacted the work and making. <laughs> making the game probably helped with that to a degree. One thing we, you and I discussed when we were discussing your game, Nicaea <laughs> is the way that that game was, you know, we, we always bring a part of ourselves to our creations, whether we want to or not. And I think one of the roles of someone who is an artist is to try to be deliberate about that, bringing <laughs> yourself to your creation. And when we were talking about Nicaea, one of the th- points you brought up we we were discussing about games as worship or games as devotion and that this was a game where the irreverence of it was very much you working through some of your own uh traumas because of religion poking fun at religion's certainty and that game was meaningful to me for some of the same reasons now we have this game endurance where i look at this and i i think about your journey as a trans woman or as somebody who's struggling with a brain hemorrhage, uh, the uncertainty of mortality. And I look at this game and I, I can't help but wonder, is this also an act of devotion or worship or working through just knowing a little bit of your background? How do you feel that this game intersects with that? Do you think maybe that's part of your reticence in assigning a win or loss condition to it? Or is you know, you you refer to Shackleton's survival as a miracle. You know, that's usually a religious term as we think of things. <laughs> a miracle being something outside the bounds of the ordinary. What are your thoughts, Amabel? Uh, I mean, I think you hit on something with that. Um, definitely, um, you know, my own figuring myself out, my own my own miracle in, informed my seeing it, seeing that historical event uh, as miraculous. Though maybe not so much in a religious sense, so much as as a dumb luck. Plus, you know, plus I mean, you, de- you deal the hand that you're dealt. You play the hand yeah. that you're dealt, and uh, but sometimes you catch a lucky break because there are so many things that just should have. Should have went wrong, and and sometimes did, but sometimes didn't, and whatnot. Um, and yeah, uh, I definitely think I hadn't thought of it until this moment, but I definitely think that's probably why I'd be hesitant to assign a victory condition to it. Um, 
because, like, am I winning at life? I mean, I feel like I am winning at life, right? Like, pe- sure. people have seen my Twitter. I'm, I'm having a pretty good life, but um, <laughs> I'm not. There's, but there's always that question of what, what do you leave after you, and and what, what does it mean? You know, those those big those big questions that art is for, and that yeah. I've kind of studiously avoided having to deal with it until it came crashing down and you're like yeah uh, um so can i can i i'm 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 gonna i'm gonna talk a little bit about maybe more than a little bit if it's okay about um oh, go ahead the the brain stuff um It'll, it'll be somewhat long and digressive, but like you, you know that you've had me on this show before. You yeah, know, know. that you, you know my deal, right? <laughs> Nothing. I know what I'm in for. Yeah. <laughs> um, so last year, um, I started to have issues with uh, my memory and my cognition. It was becoming very difficult to think and to focus, and everything was kind of fuzzy and foggy, um, which was very concerning to me. I had had kind of fogginess in the brain before before transition because I was dealing with like undiagnosed gender dysphoria and fighting through yeah. that to do everything. Uh, but once I got on um, feminizing HRT, like that cleared up considerably and that that led to uh something like Nicaea where it's, it's much clearer and much 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 more um elegant. Yeah. And I mean, we'll think much more quickly and clearly, but then it started to get fuzzy again. And I was really worried about that because um, basically every woman on my mother's side of the family, when she hits a certain age, gets Alzheimer's. Yeah. And I had watched over and again, uh, watch that process where they forget and they, you know, the person dies long before the body does. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible thing. Now I was worried about that. So I go to my doctor and I say, um, hey, this is the problem I'm having and I'm worried I'm worried about, um, you know, Alzheimer's. And she's like, you're 40. You don't have Alzheimer's. Come on. Uh, <laughs> but we'll do some tests. We'll figure out what, what it is. Probably nothing to worry about. And she starts, starts with a blood test. And it turns out my, my B12 level is extremely low. So low, in fact, it may have caused permanent brain damage. That's fun. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's low. That's really low. Yeah. Uh, and actually what it is, it turns out, um, is that one of the possible side effects of feminizing HRT, of, of, the, of the estrogen, uh, is it can lower your B12, especially if you don't get a lot of meat in your diet. And I'm mm. basically a vegetarian most days. You know, mm-hmm. I kind of split my time between living here with with Mary and then hanging out uh, with my girlfriend Sawin, who she is not a vegetarian, so I do eat some meat over there. But um, so my B twelve is real low, and uh, my doctor got me on a B twelve supplement, which uh, did clear up a lot of those issues. Like, oh, this is great. This is this was mm-hmm. the issue. I don't need to worry about it. But she had also ordered an MRI at that time, and I was like, well, I don't really need this MRI because I already know what the problem is, but. I'll go through this MRI and have you had an MRI before? Uh, no, it was, it was, 
one of the worst experiences of my life. I hated it. I hated it so much um, because they put you in this machine and you can't move. Right. You can't move your body at all. And your head is kind of fixed in place. And there are these weird sounds going on. And it just, like, over the course of like, this half hour, like, I couldn't feel my body. I just felt completely alienated from it in ways I haven't since, like, before transition. Because before transition, like, I didn't feel like I was my body. I felt like mm-hmm. I existed in my body the same way you're not your house, but you live in your house. Mm-hmm. So I felt like my body was a thing I was in, but the actual me was not that. And, it, and then once I started uh, transition my body felt like me and it's it's kind of a hard thing to, unless you've experienced it, most people don't know what I'm talking about, but it's, it's, it's Mm, such a crucial thing. And like, I was feeling like that again. So that didn't feel great. And then they injected this, this magnetic dye into my blood. Right. And, um, I could, I could feel the dye moving through my circulatory system. That sounds crazy, but like I could feel it and it made me extremely ill. Because one problem I have is that anything that reminds me that the body is made up of like tubes of meat hanging inside, like the the, the physics of it, the 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 way things move through it, it just it makes me so incredibly ill. Um not just like unpleasant things. Like pleasant things will do that too. I'm gonna do another digression. This one's going to be a little <laughs> little spicy, but again, you knew what you were getting for having me on your show. So, um, one thing estrogen does, uh, feminizing HRT does, it has some physical changes. And it, that includes um, some changes to parts of the anatomy and their functionality. Talk about ding dongs. Sure. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Um, and uh, so one thing you have to do as, as a trans feminine person who is someone who uh, has a libido is you need to under reintroduce yourself to, sure. to the body and how it works and what it responds to. And I was talking to another trans woman about this, and she recommended to me uh, a particular act uh, called muffing. I'm not going to describe it on your podcast. <laughs> People can look it up if they want on Google. This was something that, though, that um, was discovered and popularized by a trans woman named Maribel Weather, who actually uh, just passed away from cancer earlier this year at a, at a very young age. Uh, but she wrote a, a zine, like a, a digital 80-page uh, yeah. zine, which uh, I'm going to say the title. It's, it's, it's called Fucking Trans Women, and it basically tells you how to do that. Uh, and it describes this act. And it has these cross these cross section diagrams showing what's going on in there, and that made me so ill to look at oh, that, that yeah. when I actually attempted the activity, like I just got physically ill. So anything like mm. that makes me physically ill. And actually, that's something that um, I'm going to get back to the point eventually. <laughs> something that that actually um, uh, is reflected in endurance, I think, because one thing we didn't talk about were the event cards. And a lot of those right. event cards uh, do try to emphasize, like, the physical suffering of the body and, like, the mechanics of things like defecation and urination in that hostile environment, uh, things that are very viscerally upsetting to me. And I, I was very upset by them, but I was put, put them in the game probably because they upset me, really. Yeah. 
So I get this magnetic die put into me anyway. Uh, and it makes me like really sick. And I have, I'm really dizzy <laughs> for like the rest of the night. Uh, and then the following night, I get an email with the test results. And the test results say, your brain's basically normal, except uh, in the left side of your brain, uh, there are these chronic tiny hemorrhages. And I was like, well, what does that mean? And I just this in an email. I'm like, oh, no, what what does that mean? And, of course, I do the yeah. worst thing possible, and I, I Google I Google it. And, first of all, where it is in the brain is consistent with early warning signs of Alzheimer's. I was kind of mm-hmm. worried about that. Not That's not great. The other thing uh, it, it, it uh, emphasized was it described some, some symptoms of, of it, and one is a, a like, particular kind of headache localized in that part of the brain. And that was very familiar because I've had that headache mm-hmm. um, since my 20s, but it's gotten a lot worse and a lot more uh, frequent and intense and debilitating within the last couple of years. Hmm. And so okay. now, so now, whenever I get that headache, what I do is I think, oh, my brain is bleeding, and I think about the inner workings of my body, and I get nauseous and sick. Yeah. So, um, and so I tell my doctor, like, okay, um, what, what's going on here? And she's like, I don't know. I'm puzzled. You should see a neurologist. And so I make an appointment with a neurologist, and the earliest appointment I can get was early this year. And this is all happening last year. So there's this period of months where, like, I am waiting to see the neurologist, and I'm just freaking out about mm-hmm. this. And it's not even that I'm worried that I'm that I'm going to die, like that I'm going to, like, have a stroke and die or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, because th- they're small hemorrhages. I, I get that. I'm not, and then also, I'm not really, I am not afraid of death. I'll tell, I'll tell hmm. you why. Because I have lived so much more and so much more fully and, and happily in the last two years than all the previous decades piled up together. I've gotten so mm-hmm. much joy uh, uh, in the last two years, lived so much life in the last two years that, like, if this is all the time I get, that's fine. I feel like I have a full life. You know, anything yeah. I get after this is gravy, as long as I get to be me, as long as I get to be Annabelle. It took me a long time to find her. It took me a long time to figure out, and I, it almost didn't happen. It very nearly almost didn't happen, but I got there, and I carried so much pain for so long to get there. And so, like, everything else is gravy after. But yeah, if I don't get wonderful. to be Annabelle for the rest of it... If I start to lose yeah. that, if I start to lose myself and forget myself, what you know? What if I forget that I'm trans? What if I forget that I'm a woman? Mm, no, I don't want that. Not at all. That that terrifying. Uh, that so I'm just <laughs> grappling with that for a month. So I finally get to the neurologist and I'm like, you know what? These are very tiny bleeds. Don't worry about it. We don't know what's causing it. It might be early Alzheimer's. We don't know. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to keep doing tests. Uh, you shouldn't worry about it like being a stroke or anything, but it might. We'll have to do check on it once in a while. So I basically had the same information I had before, but being told don't worry about it did help. Yeah. At the same time, I'm still, I'm still, sure. I'm still grappling with the uncertainty of it. 
And in some ways, also the certainty of it, because like, ev- even if I have so many more years before things go downhill, every woman in my family has had Alzheimer's. My my memory gaps and foggy thinking, which still persist in, in bits and starts, very much like what my grandmother was like before, you know, a couple decades before she had Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Right? So, like, there's a certainty to it, actually. That, yeah, probably, if I live long enough, that is what is going to happen. And I hate that. I hate that so much. Yeah. But at the same time, does that change how I live my life? I mean, it's like being a trans woman in the year 2023. <laughs> Everything's pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a fair amount of privilege that insulates me from a lot of it, but a lot of people I know and care about do not have that privilege. And it's still scary. It's still it's in the air. You know, when you're trying to be legislated out of existence, like you breathe it in every day and you're scared all the time. Everyone I know is scared all the time. At the same time, does that change what I'm doing with my life? I'm still trying to get as much joy as I can. And I'm trying to be as thoughtful as I can and put as much kindness and, and love out into the world as I can. Yeah. I'd still be doing that even if that wasn't the case, right? Yeah. You know, and I guess, I don't know, there's there's some solace in that, I guess. You know, I don't want to say it makes the pain and suffering worth it or makes it bearable. I feel like people say stuff like that a lot, you know, like that the little moments make the hard moments bearable. And I mean, they do, but I don't think that's the point of, 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 of the joy. The point of the joy isn't to, to make the suffering something you can stomach. I, I think that's a very mathematical way to look at it. Actually. (laughs) I, I think the point of the joy is itself, you know? Sure. So, that's what I'm trying to do, and I don't know. I th- I think that I think that attitude is reflected in the game. There's something you know. I really loved your re- your review of the game very much, um, and there's something that you said about the game being you know both hopeful and, and miserable, and I yeah. feel like a lot of people just see the misery of it, mm-hmm. and it it really meant a lot that. There are people who, who who see the hopefulness of it because I do think I do think it's it's an affirming game actually. I agree. Yeah, um, I agree. I agree completely. I, you know, I I know so many people who struggle, um, and some of this is just coming from the cultural background that I do, which is Mormonism. Which Mormonism has a lot of hangups. I bet that surprises you, <laughs> but the. Uh, Sorry. But one of them, one of them is that Mormons typically do not watch rated R movies or consume media according to kind of a mathematical formula. And um, even back when I was very active in Mormonism, as opposed to now, that that was something that caused a, a bit of a rift with some people. Because I, I tended to think that that was a, a bit of a nonsense rubric. Because, you know, my, my attitude at that time was, well, there are plenty of R-rated movies that I found very uplifting. First of all, let's leave aside 
why they're rated R. I think that me letting the, you know, a ratings board determine whether I can engage with art or not, I think is a little bit silly, but, but beyond that, let's say that it's rated R because it's a miserable experience. Well, one of the most meaningful films I've ever watched in my life is Martin Scorsese's silence. I adore that film. I find it incredibly uplifting and affirming. And the reason it's uplifting and affirming is because you sit through three hours of utter misery to reach a point where the characters decide that they are going to do something different with their misery uh, than perpetuate it. And I love that movie. That movie informs my, my perception of what it means to be a good person. That movie made me a better person in some ways. And I would not have experienced that if I, if I allowed, well, this is miserable or this is rated R to be the litmus test for whether I am allowed to engage in art. Yeah. And so when people, and so coming from my culture, I, I know all sorts of people who their attitude is, well, would you eat a cookie if it had a, if one of its chocolate chips was a dog turd? That's a common metaphor that uh, Mormon pe- families will use to uh, say, well, that's why you shouldn't watch a rated R movie because some of its chocolate chips are, are dog turds. And I'm going, but what if the cookie, would you eat a cookie with a dog turd in it if it would improve your life, if it would make you a better person, if it would make you a renewed creature? Because I think I would, depending on what it would turn me into. If art can enliven us, art can also demean us. Absolutely. But I ha- But in ex- experiencing art, I find myself enlivened all the time and demeaned so, re- so rarely. So a game like Endurance, which, yes, there's so much misery in it, but what comes through is, is just the determination of a human spirit to accept and welcome the boxcars and push through the snake eyes. And sometimes that's all we can do in life. I wish we could, you know, we all wish we had more, but sometimes that's all we can do. And it makes me, and a game like that, uh, a piece of art like that does make me more grateful for the times the roles go my way and maybe toughen up a little for when the roles don't. And so I am grateful for endurance. Thank you, Amabel, for designing it. I, I, think that, I think that this is not only art, but it's necessary art. Gonna make me cry, Dan. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. That's okay. I cry a lot. Thank you, Estrogen. I cry a lot <laughs> these days. <laughs> it's good to cry. I didn't used to cry as much or as freely or as fully. It's good to feel, you know? Yeah. So I I, I agree. I think that the misery is is not something that is uh in the game in spite of its spirit. I think it's the cause of its spirit. And unfortunately, I do think that there is a tendency of people to not realize that. Thank you. Well, Amabel, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I'm grateful for the game you've given us. I'm grateful for your honesty and openness, for your candor. To those who are listening, I hope you check out what Amabel is designing. 
Um, Amabel has recently published not only Endurance, which she designed, but there's another game that uh, I would also kind of in the same vein recommend, which is Heading Forward, which I also think is a game that is willing to examine some of the depths that we as humans suffering with fallible and breakable bodies. Um, Heading Forward by John Du. Now, is it Du Bois or Du Bois? I think it's Du Bois. I've only ever called him John, so I can't. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So John Dubois, we're going to go with that, has designed this game that Amabel has also published. These two games, to me, are the two best games that Holland Spiel has published in recently. I don't don't want to put, you know, in ever or in recent times. I don't know how I would qualify that. But these two games, I think, speak to a determination of human spirit that is just breathtaking. And I, I cannot recommend these two games enough. So once again, Amabel, thank you so much for joining me and take care. Thank you. You too. 